All Bones Considered, podcast number 11, March 2020. She invented what? Martha Costin, Rachel Holloway Lloyd, Mary Engel Pennington. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 40 minutes or so and find out about some of our permanent residents. Martha Costin, who invented the signal flare that bears her name and in so doing saved thousands of lives. Rachel Lloyd, who had to go to Europe to get her PhD in chemistry, but then jump-started the sugar beet industry in the United States. And Mary Engel Pennington, the ice lady, who completely changed the way your food is prepared, shipped, and stored. I'm Joe Lex, your host for this Women's Month edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. Martha Costin, Rachel Lloyd, and Mary Pennington may not be familiar names, but they all made a place for themselves in American history. In a time before women could even vote, they were pushing scientific advances in wartime communication, sugar production, and food refrigeration. All three are buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, and they need their stories to be better known. I hope to do so in this March 2020 edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Martha Costin, she had a certain flair. Martha Hunt was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1826. She moved to Philadelphia with her widowed mother, brothers, and sisters sometime during the 1830s. She was whip-smart and rebellious. At age 16, she met a handsome 21-year-old promising inventor named Benjamin Franklin Coston, who had already developed a working prototype of a submarine that could be, quote, navigated eight hours underwater, end quote. She fell in love, and much to her mother's displeasure, Martha and Benjamin eloped and married. Benjamin Costin's talent was recognized, and he was appointed master in the naval service by Secretary of the Navy George Bancroft, who also placed him in charge of the naval laboratory in the Washington Navy Yard. Costin supervised the installation of the laboratory equipment. In late 1845 and early 1846, Costin developed a percussion cap that could be used to ignite the charge in a muzzle-loading cannon. This type of cannon was previously fired by stuffing a bag of gunpowder down the muzzle and then ramming a cannonball against the powder bag. The gunner then went to the touch hole located at the back of the barrel. 
priming the cannon consisted of reaching down through the touch hole and pricking a small hole in the bag of gunpowder. This was, of course, done with a non-sparking metal rod. Then the touch hole was filled with gunpowder. Firing the cannon required igniting the gunpowder in the touch hole and then hoping that it burned all the way down to the bag where, hopefully, it would ignite the gunpowder and fire the gun. It took a lot of skill to perform these steps so the cannon would reliably fire. Aboard a rolling ship, the time delay between igniting the primer and exploding the main charge had to be accounted for. Igniting the primer on the downward roll sent the cannonball into the sea, while igniting it on an upward roll would send the cannonball sailing harmlessly over the enemy's head. Percussion caps solved this problem. These are small copper or brass cylinders filled with a shock-sensitive explosive material. Mercury fulminate was the most common choice. Striking the cap ignited the mercury fulminate and allowed the main charge to ignite without a delay. Costin's percussion primer vastly improved a cannon's accuracy. But there was a problem. Costin never told the government how to manufacture the percussion caps, and he kept the formulation of his explosive material a secret. In February of 1846, the commander of the Navy Yard wrote Costin a letter politely requesting this information. Costin wrote back the same day, pointing out that he considered this information to be his private property and that he respectfully declined to furnish it. He did offer to supply the Navy with the caps at a cost of $9.81 each. Rival scientists persuaded Congress to formalize the Navy's Office of Pyrotechnics and set the directors, i.e. Costin's annual salary, at $1,500. The director would not hold naval rank. He would not be provided with government housing. Costin held the rank of master and refused to relinquish his commission or give up his housing. Not wanting to lose Costin's services, the Secretary of the Navy paid his salary until the matter could be resolved during the next session of Congress. The percussion primer was developed while his exact status was uncertain. Therefore, it was not clear whether the percussion cap formula was owned by Costin or the Navy. This dispute over compensation for the Navy's use of his cannon percussion primer led to Costin's resignation in August 1847. This was soon after John Dahlgren, covered in the last podcast, took over the naval yard. Costin and Dahlgren did not part as friends. Costin accepted a position as president of the Boston Gas Company, where he perfected and manufactured the Silvic Gas Light. By this time, though, he was already experiencing the effects of serious health hazards from constant inhalation of phosphorus-based chemical gases used in experiments while he was at the Navy Yard. In Boston, his process of generating gas from rosin further aggravated his condition. Although his accomplishments with gas lighting were hailed as a major success in both home and commercial lighting, the toxic effects of chemical processing proved fatal to Benjamin Franklin Costin. He died on November 24, 1848, leaving behind his 21-year-old widow Martha with four small children. Martha did not have much time to grieve the loss of her husband. Within the next several months, her infant son died, And then her mother, 
upon whom she had been dependent for help with child care, and that another son died. She was a young widow with two sons in profound grief and with no apparent means of support. She was desperate for a means to make money. Fortunately, she had developed a habit early in marriage of staying interested in Benjamin's work. Every evening at dinner time, she would query him about what he had done that day. And he was a natural teacher and was more than happy to explain. So without ever setting foot in the laboratory, Martha had actually learned the basics of pyrotechnics. A few years after Benjamin died, Martha went through his papers, notebooks, and unfinished works. She discovered, quote, numerous packets carefully sealed and labeled, end quote, one of which contained drawings for a pyrotechnic night signal. She recalled that her husband worked on this invention while at the Washington Navy Yard and had given a test set of the signals to a particular naval officer for later testing. Contact with this officer proved difficult, and the return of the signal flares problematic. Eventually, he begrudgingly returned to the damaged box of signals. Costin used her Washington, D.C. social and U.S. Navy connections forged during her marriage to pursue what she considered the one hope for her whole future. With desperate determination, she approached the current Secretary of the Navy, Isaac Tusi, about having the signals tested. To her relief, quote, he readily consented to a trial of the signals, end quote, which fell to the flagship Wabash under Commodore, afterwards Admiral Paulding. At the conclusion of the testing period, Costin received a letter from Paulding informing her that, quote, the signals proved utterly good for nothing, end quote. But Paulding also mentioned in the letter that he thought the signals a very good idea and encouraged continued work to perfect the invention. Unfortunately for historians of science, Martha chose not to describe the series of experiments that led to her first successful flare. The submission leaves open the question of how much of the work was personally done by Martha. She made no secret of the fact that much of the experimental work was done by collaborators recruited from the community of pyrotechnic chemists. Martha is never clear about how much of the experimental work she did herself. She hints about conducting experiments, but these may have been confined to igniting and observing the pyrotechnic mixtures. Even if she relied almost exclusively on collaborators or hired chemists, it is difficult to believe that she would have had no input on technical matters. But she did know enough to dismiss chemists who were uncooperative, unproductive, or dismissive of her as a woman. Martha observed that, quote, We hear much of chivalry of men towards women but it vanishes like the dew before the summer sun when one of us comes into competition with the manly sex. Let a woman sit, weep, wring her hands, and exult in her own helplessness, and the modern knight buckles on his imaginary breastplate and draws his sword in her behalf. But when the woman girds up her loins for the battle of life, ready to fight like a lioness if need be, to put food in the mouths of her children, let her select for her field the living room or the cooking range, end quote. When Costin received her first patent in 1859, more than 10 years after Benjamin's death, her late husband's name was on it. 
primarily because she felt that he had done the bulk of the work and not because women couldn't register a patent, as some people have reported. Later patents were in her own name. For instance, she claimed originality of the idea for a flare that would burn sequentially in two or more colors. Martha's preference was for a flare that would burn first in red, then in white, and finally in blue. But neither Costin or her collaborators were able to produce an intense blue color. And so rather than the country's national colors, the flares were commonly red, white, and green. The great two advantages of her signals were that a burning flare that predictably changed colors could not be mistaken for anything else, and that the color changes could be part of a signaling code. I can report that when I was in Vietnam more than 50 years ago with an infantry unit, we still did not have blue flares. By 1859, the success of the signal was well documented by a specially appointed board of naval examiners from Secretary Tusi. After a month-long testing period, a report was published in February of that year. In brief summary, the report contained three main points. One, Costin signals are better than any other known to them. Two, the board strongly recommends them for the use of the Navy. And three, signals being the means whereby orders are given or once made known at sea a good code of them plainly intelligible to the persons addressed is absolutely necessary to the efficient conduct of a fleet. The report concluded with a full endorsement. Quote, the application of the Costin night signals to the Navy day signal books gives a perfect code of night signals. They offer precision, fullness, and plainness at a less cost for fireworks than it is thought we now pay for confusion and uncertainty, end quote. In the opinion of the Board of Examiners, the signals were decidedly superior. But still, the Navy did not purchase the patent. During the next two-year period, from 1859 until the beginning of the Civil War in 1861, the U.S. Navy delayed purchase of the patent with stall tactics. The Navy continued to buy large orders of sets, each set consisting of 12 flares, and per direction of Secretary Tusi, D.N. Ingraham, now Chief of the Bureau of Ordnance, ordered at least 300 sets in March of 1859. Within a short time, the Navy had placed its first order of $6,000, small size at $4 per set, large size at $7 per set. These signals were divided for use between the North and South Atlantic, the North and South Pacific, and the African fleets. While the issue of purchasing the Costin patent was under debate in Congress, Costin made an aggressive business decision to market her flares in Europe. She set sail for England with her two small sons in August 1859. Before leaving for Europe, she secured patents in England, France, Holland, Austria, Denmark, Italy, and Sweden. Costin remained in Europe until 1861, traveling back and forth between London and Paris, occupied in negotiations with the British and French governments for the purchase of her patent. When the Civil War finally broke out in earnest, Costin returned home from England in the summer of 1861. She went directly to Washington, D.C. to push the bill before Congress for the sale of the patent. Although Congress still had not purchased her patent, 
Hostin's factory quickly furnished flares to the first 600 vessels the Union could outfit. Finally, authorized by an act of Congress on August 5, 1861, the U.S. Navy acquired the patent. Costin had asked $40,000. The Senate reduced it to $30,000. And finally, she got $20,000 for the patent. Now, during the Civil War, the Costin Manufacturing Company continued to manufacture and supply the signals at cost to the Navy which actually meant selling at a loss due to wartime inflation of the cost of materials. Although the Navy had the patent, they tried to produce the flares themselves, but they were unable to do so at a cost lower than Costin could manufacture them. Congressional records dated until as late as 1876 document the repeated attempts by Costin to get compensation promised her by the Navy for selling the flares at cost for most of the Civil War. By 1875, her claims remained unsettled. Details surfaced during the 43rd Congress. The Honorable William Faxon, a former Assistant Secretary of the Navy, wrote a letter to Costin dated January 15, 1875. It stated in part that, quote, it was the universal testimony of the officers of the Navy that the signals were of greatest possible service, indispensable, in fact and always thought that you were very patriotic in continuing to furnish them at gold prices, taking pay in largely depreciated paper. After the patent was purchased, an attempt was made to manufacture the signals in the Navy Yard, but they cost more than your prices." The report continued in the acknowledgement that approximately 100,000 sets, 1,200,000 flares, were furnished by Costin to the Navy during the war. It was estimated that $120,000 was due to her. The government offered her $15,000. It is not surprising to hear again a bitter tone when she wrote years later about this experience. Now, aside from their importance in giving orders before and during battles, the system made it easy to identify friends and foes. If a ship didn't use a costume flare, it might well be hostile. They also became critical to search and rescue missions. In the December 1862 sinking of the Monitor off Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, the crew used a costume flare to send an emergency signal to their towing vessel. Thanks partly to the flare's clarity, most of the men were rescued. In the post-war years, Costin signals became a staple of the life-saving service, a future arm of the Coast Guard. They were used by ship crews to signal distress and by responding beach patrols. And on April 17, 1912, the Philadelphia Inquirer breathlessly described a night of black terror during which Costin signals were burned, rockets sent up, as the wireless snapped out its frantic appeal for help on board the USS Titanic. Costin signals remained the main night signaling system of naval and maritime services until the advent of marine radios in the 1930s. In the years following the Civil War, Martha and her surviving sons, William Franklin Costin and Henry H. Costin, 
took over the production of the Costin Signals and established a small factory on Cary Avenue in the New Brighton section of Staten Island. The signals produced there were used not only in the United States Navy, Life-Saving Service, Customs, Army, and Weather Bureau, but by the navies of France, Spain, Denmark, Italy, the Netherlands, Brazil, and thousands of merchant ships. By 1884, the Brooklyn Eagle reported that 337 vessels were saved by the life-saving device. The operations of the Costin Signal Company remained very much within the family. Martha's granddaughters and daughter-in-law, Anna L. Costin, all worked in the company's laboratories and were reported to have played a critical role in meeting the military's demand for flares during the Spanish-American War of 1898 to 1901. The company was still owned by Martha, and her daughter-in-law, Anna, William's wife, was the president. Martha died at age 77 in 1904. Her flares lived on for another 80 years. Martha was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2006. She, husband Benjamin, and three of her sons are buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section D, Plot 62, not far from the gatehouse. Rachel Abby Holloway Lloyd. Almost all of the following is condensed with permission from the American Chemical Society National Historic Chemical Landmarks. Rachel Lloyd, Ph.D., Pioneering Woman in Chemistry. That's from their website, www.acs.org. Rachel Abby Holloway was born on January 26, 1839, to Robert Smith Holloway and Abigail Tabor, a Quaker couple in Ohio. Of their four children, only Rachel survived past infancy. But when she was five years old, Abigail died. And seven years later, Richard died as well. Orphaned at age 12, Rachel was raised by her stepmother from her father's second marriage. At age 14, Rachel was sent to a boarding school near Philadelphia. Then she taught at a girls' finishing school when she graduated. In 1859, at age 20, Rachel married Franklin Lloyd, age 27, a chemist at Powers and Waitman, a large chemical producer in Schuylkill Falls. William Waitman is buried at Laurel Hill South, section 2, lots 11 to 16. Rachel and Franklin quickly had two children, Fanny and William C. Both of them died in infancy. Franklin graduated from the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy in 1861 and he started work as a chemist and a businessman. Now, Franklin kept a chemical laboratory in their home at 731 Green Street, and Rachel's introduction to the field came through her husband's work. When the Chicago Daily Tribune interviewed her in 1893, they wrote, quote, the girl wife dearly loved to perch herself with some bit of sewing in the deep window of her husband's laboratory. And as she became familiar with the apparatus and watched the experiments with wondering eyes, she little dreamed that the same work would one day be hers in even more extended fields." Quote. In 1863, the Lloyds moved to Michigan, where Franklin supervised a sawmill, salt works, and a barrel factory. 
but he died at age 33 in 1865 of bilious fever. Rachel, orphaned at 12, now widowed and childless at age 26, took her sizable estate and escaped to Europe for a few years. She returned to Philadelphia briefly in 1868, living near Forth and Spruce. But then a financial panic in 1873 left her penniless and unable to support herself abroad, so she returned to the United States to find work. By 1875, more than 18,000 businesses had failed, and the unemployment rate was 14%. Returning to Philadelphia, Rachel taught chemistry at the Chestnut Street Female Seminary, a prominent girls' finishing school at what is now 1615 Chestnut Street. For a woman teacher, a position in primary schools and girls' finishing schools was about the best she could hope to attain. Lloyd was noted for introducing laboratory experiments into the curriculum at Chestnut Street, a rarity in science courses for women and girls of any age in the 1870s. Lloyd had learned much chemistry from her husband's profession, but decided to further educate herself. In 1875, while she was in her mid-30s, she enrolled in summer school at Harvard University and learned to do chemical research. Harvard, like most leading universities at the time, did not accept women as regular students. But the summer school offered teachers training, although without the chance to earn a degree. Lloyd took seven chemistry courses and audited several botany courses in the summers from 1875 until 1883, by which time she was 44 years old. Throughout this time, she lived at the Chestnut Street Seminary. While at Harvard, Lloyd studied advanced quantitative chemistry under Charles F. Mabry, director of the Summer Chemistry Program. In 1881, Mabry and Lloyd published research in the Proceedings of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Chemical Journal, marking the first publication by a woman in a major chemical journal in the United States. Two subsequent publications by Mabry and Lloyd followed in 1882 and 1884. Lloyd then briefly taught at a girls' school in New York before becoming an instructor of chemistry and physics at the Hampton College for Women in Louisville, Kentucky in 1882. Two years later, she became a chemistry instructor at the Louisville School of Pharmacy for Women. In 1884, Lloyd applied for the position of Professor of Chemistry at the newly established All-Girls Bryn Mawr College just outside Philadelphia. Despite years of teaching experience and a favorable reference by Mabry, Lloyd's application was rejected. The college cited her lack of a degree in its explanation. Lloyd, whose ambition was to teach at the collegiate level, now resolved to earn a degree. Now, there were a handful of U.S. universities accepting women into doctoral programs at the time. Boston University awarded Helen McGill a Ph.D. in Classics in 1877. She was the first doctoral degree granted to a woman in the United States. None of these universities had accepted a female candidate in chemistry, though. For the sciences and mathematics... The University of Zurich in Switzerland was the leading center for women's higher education, a rare exception among the prestigious German-speaking universities. 
at Zurich, Lloyd studied under the organic chemist Auguste Victor Mers. She was among a very small group of women studying advanced chemistry in the late 1800s. The Russian, Julia Lermontova, had earned her doctorate degree in chemistry in 1874 from the University of Göttingen, becoming the first woman to receive the degree. A notable American example, Ellen Swallow Richards, earned bachelor's degrees in chemistry from Vassar College in 1870 and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1873. She was the first woman to do so in the United States. Richards had hoped to receive a doctorate at MIT, but the university did not accept women into its graduate programs. Other fields provided more opportunities for women than chemistry. A handful of women had been earning medical degrees in Europe and the U.S. since the 1860s. In the 1880s, the women made great strides in botany. The physical sciences, however, remained the domain of men, and women were often strongly discouraged from entering. Rachel Bodley, a founding member of the American Chemical Society, resigned from the association following a meeting at which womankind itself was the object of criticism. Such misogynistic sentiments in the sciences reflected broader tensions surrounding women's roles in society at a time when few entered the workforce and women lacked the right to vote in most states. On February 21, 1887, at age 48, Lloyd graduated from the University of Zurich with a thesis on the conversion of some of the homologues of benzol phenol into primary and secondary amines. She was the first American woman and the second woman in the world to receive a doctoral degree in chemistry. Shortly after her graduation from Zurich, Lloyd received a letter from Henry Hudson Nicholson, chair of the chemistry department at the University of Nebraska, asking her to join the faculty there. Lloyd and Nicholson had met during their Harvard summers, both having studied under Mabry. Nicholson presented Lloyd with a rare opportunity to teach and conduct research at a co-educational university at a time when most of her female peers were relegated to teaching at secondary schools or women's colleges. She arrived in Lincoln, Nebraska in the summer of 1887. The university, which had been chartered in 1869, was undergoing a major expansion and modernization around this time as it transitioned from a preparatory school to a full-fledged university. Lloyd was the second member of the chemistry faculty after Nicholson and the only one holding a doctoral degree. She arrived one year after the dedication of the university's chemical laboratory building. Upon her arrival, Lloyd was named Associate Professor of Analytic Chemistry. In addition to her teaching responsibilities, she took on the role of assistant chemist at the Nebraska Agricultural Experiment Station. Her research was supported by the Federal Hatch Act of 1887, which provided funding for the founding of agricultural experiment stations across the country. Lloyd received wide praise by faculty and students for her technical expertise, teaching ability, and devotion to public service. She became a popular figure at the university, due in equal parts to her warm personality and her cultural refinement, provided by an Eastern upbringing and extensive European travels. 
Her research at Nebraska centered on chemical analyses of the concentration of sugars in sugar beets, an emerging crop in the U.S. in the late 1800s. Lloyd had been introduced to the sugar beet while studying in Switzerland. Her expertise and the new agricultural station in Lincoln provided an opportunity to explore the possibility of raising beets across Nebraska. The first attempts at sugar beet cultivation were pursued by abolitionists in New England. The Beet Sugar Society of Philadelphia was founded in 1836 and promoted home-produced beet sugar as an alternative to the slave-produced cane sugar from the West Indies or sugar imported from Asia. It was called free sugar because it was grown without using slavery. Unfortunately, it tasted awful. Cane sugar production in the South had been very hard labor and slave dependent. Tens of thousands of young slaves were literally worked to death making sugar. Once a slave was assigned to a sugar plantation, his average lifespan was less than three years. Beet sugar was far less labor intensive and did not require slave labor to turn a profit. Lloyd and Nicholson grew a test crop of beets in 1888 and initial results were promising. The next year, they sent seeds to farmers across the state. At the end of the season, farmers returned their harvests to Lincoln, where they were washed and weighed. A sample from the core of the beet was pulped and pressed to release its juices. Total sugar concentration was determined using a saccharometer, which works according to Archimedes' principle of displacement and a test called Felling's reduction. The survey noted each crop's seed variety, soil profile, and climate, among other variables. Lloyd and a team of student researchers completed roughly 700 such analyses. The experiment was a success. Nicholson and Lloyd published the first of three reports on sugar production in the state in 1890. Findings were so encouraging that investors established a sugar factory near Grand Island in the same year. It was the third successful commercial sugar beet refinery in the United States and the first in the Great Plains. Production in Nebraska expanded rapidly. From 736,000 pounds of granulated sugar in 1890 to 8,378,000 pounds in 1895 and additional factories were built. Shortly after, the university established a sugar school to train workers for the state's growing sugar industry. Sugar beets are currently grown in 11 states and they represent 55% of the U.S. sugar production. When Nicholson traveled in Europe during the spring and summer of 1892, Rachel Lloyd served as acting chair of the chemistry department and no one batted an eye. But that summer, while she was traveling, she suffered an attack of partial paralysis, a condition from which she never fully recovered. Because of these health problems, Lloyd announced her retirement from the university in the spring of 1894. She was 55 years old. Lloyd briefly took a position teaching science at the Hillside Home School in Spring Green, Wisconsin, but her poor health and limited mobility prohibited her from serving a second year. She returned to Philadelphia to live near friends and relations. And on March 7, 1900, Rachel Lloyd died at the age of 61. 
She is interred in the family plot of Laurel Hill South, Section 9, Lot 76, with her husband and infant child. Lloyd's time at the University of Nebraska launched a period for the campus as an important node for women's education in chemistry that was unusual among its peers. Between 1888 and 1915, 10 of the 46 graduate students in the chemistry department were women. Eight of these joined the Nebraska local section of the American Chemical Society, which accepted more women members than any other during these years. The university's first two women chemistry graduate students became faculty members in the chemistry department. The American Chemical Society designated the research and professional contributions of Rachel Lloyd, Ph.D., as a National Historic Chemical Landmark at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln on October 1, 2014. The commemorative plaque reads, Rachel Holloway Lloyd, 1839-1900, became the first American woman to earn a doctorate in chemistry in 1887 when she received her degree from the University of Zurich. In the same year, she was hired as a researcher and professor of chemistry by the University of Nebraska, position she held until her retirement in 1894. Her work on determining the concentration of sucrose in Nebraska-grown sugar beets contributed to the establishment of a commercial sugar industry in the state as early as 1890. Lloyd's warm personality, cultural refinement, and commitment to scientific research drew young women into the chemistry department and earned the university a reputation for nurturing women chemists at a time when they were largely excluded from the field. Do you sometimes pop a frozen meal under the microwave for dinner? Do you like fresh eggs? How about ice cream? Did you ever wonder how, living in Maine, you can enjoy strawberries in January and asparagus in February? If you're considering anything that comes from the refrigerator or the freezer, you can probably thank Dr. Mary Engel Pennington. Mary Pennington, known as the Ice Lady, was a pioneer in food preservation. As the population of the United States shifted from the countryside into the city in the early 20th century, people began depending on grocery stores for their entire food supplies. No more going to the backyard for fresh eggs and then grab a chicken and maybe some carrots on the way back to the kitchen. Now these foods had to be transported to the new population centers safely and effectively and then stored properly until purchased and used. In those pre-Food and Drug Administration days, there were no standards for safe food handling or storage. Many frozen or refrigerated foods were rightfully thought unsafe and unappetizing. Canned foods were looked at with suspicion. Foods arrived at their grocers spoiled, dried out, and even moldy. Hundreds of people died and thousands got sick every year after consuming contaminated foods, particularly eggs, milk, fish, and poultry. Mary Engel Pennington was born in Nashville, Tennessee in 1872, but her parents moved to Philadelphia shortly after her birth to be closer to her mother Sarah Pennington's Quaker relatives. Mary always considered herself a Philadelphian. 
She demonstrated an early interest in chemistry when she found and read a library book on chemistry when she was 12. She caused quite a stir at her young ladies' day school when she demanded instruction in chemistry. The headmistress brushed her aside, saying, I doubt that you could even spell it. Now, when Mary completed boarding school, she was a finished but ignorant young lady who found that all the boys she had played with were now students at the University of Pennsylvania. In 1887, when she was 15 and without her parents' knowledge, she walked into the office of the dean of the university and asked permission to enter the scientific school. The dean looked at the earnest teenager and silently chewed his mustache for a few seconds, and then he led her to the chemistry laboratory where he introduced the new pupil to the professor. Mary's parents were shocked, but Mr. Pennington was reassured when he discovered that both the dean and the chemistry professor were fellow 33rd degree Masons. Mary Pennington completed the requirements for a BS degree in bacteriological chemistry with minors in botany and zoology in 1890. She was 18 years old. But the University of Pennsylvania did not grant degrees to women. So she was given a certificate of proficiency instead of a degree. Pennington refused to concede to the standards of her day. She pushed onward with even more advanced graduate classes. Penn finally gave in. They allowed her to take the advanced courses as long as she promised not to apply for the Ph.D. until she was 21 years old. She waited until she was 22, and she was awarded her Ph.D. in chemistry in 1894. In 1898, with the backing of some 400 Philadelphia doctors, each of whom promised to give her at least $50 a year worth of business, Dr. Pennington established herself as the Philadelphia Clinical Laboratory, doing bacteriological analysis for the subscribing doctors. She developed such a good reputation that she was offered a municipal job as head of the city's bacteriological department. She tackled the problem of impure milk and began a study of the behavior and preservation of milk at low temperatures. Although she had no laws to back her, she managed to get the Philadelphia peddlers of Hokey Pokey, which was ice cream sold from push carts, to concoct their wares under more sanitary conditions. She did this simply by showing them microscope slides bearing organisms from their unsanitary Hokey Pokey carts. Sincerely horrified, they consented to boil their pots and ladles. Initially referred to in the markets of Philadelphia in the early 1900s as the Ice Lady, Pennington encouraged the vendors to put their fish and other perishables on ice. There were several ice houses in Philadelphia at the time. In 1905, Pennington took an interest in refrigeration itself. She ended up with a half a dozen patents, all related to the safe handling of fish, poultry, eggs, and milk. All these perishables required just the right amount of refrigeration, and Pennington could tell you exactly how much. Pennington's professional career would lead her to discover huge breakthroughs in food preservation. She studied every stage a chicken passed through from farm to slaughter to transportation and consumer, as well as the storage condition of the retailer. She personally slaughtered thousands of chickens as part of her study. Her work showed that for poultry to arrive safely on the tables of families, 
each stage of the process had to be hygienic and properly refrigerated. She also studied meat on a microscopic level for levels of deterioration. Her research led to the knowledge that poultry could be frozen at zero degree temperatures for up to a year, a standard we still follow today. Her research showed that highly perishable eggs needed to be collected more frequently in warm weather. Oh, and many people credit her with the invention of the egg carton. She also designed the refrigerated railroad car that transports food safely across the country. This invention also made possible the transportation of milk and beer. Pennington's insulation also contributed to the design of household refrigerators and freezers. Some of her many other inventions include quick-freezing fish fillets and sterile food products containers. After the landmark Pure Food and Drug Act was passed in 1906, the Bureau of Chemistry decided to set up the Food Research Laboratory to furnish scientific data for prosecutions under the Act and also to recommend hygienic procedures for food dealers eager to improve their standards and avoid prosecution. Now, without her knowledge, her boss and the first FDA commissioner, Harvey Wiley, had enrolled Dr. Pennington for the civil service examination for chief of the laboratory. She was infuriated, but she took the test anyway, as M.E. Pennington. She was awarded the job. She established the laboratory in Philadelphia. She hired a stenographer. She hired a research assistant, and she set to work improving the technique of handling shipments of food and poultry. This was all before the examiners figured out that she was a woman. She kept the job, as there was obviously no one better qualified. Pennington advanced food safety during World War I. After learning that too much humidity caused food to spoil and too little humidity caused it to dry, she designed a more effectively insulated railway car that could safely bring food to the troops a breakthrough that would earn her the Nobel Service Medal in 1919 for her war effort. Dr. Mary Engel Pennington spent more than 40 years educating the public on the importance of proper food handling. She published dozens of original research papers. She determined how best to freeze fruits and vegetables, how to keep milk and other dairy products from spoiling, and how to slaughter poultry to keep them fresh longer. Her six patents are testaments to her significant influence. In 1923, she was recognized by the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, ASHRAE. She published pamphlets on home food safety, including The Care of the Child's Food in the Home in 1925, and Cold is the Absence of Heat in 1927. And she was elected to the Poultry Historical Society Hall of Fame in 1959. She has also been inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame and was finally inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2018. Pennington never married. She had a house in the woods outside of Arlington, Virginia. That was her regular getaway. But while she was away, thieves broke in and did some damage. Then they neglected to seal the house. So when she returned, it had been invaded by various forest creatures and required a major overhaul. Pennington was so annoyed that she acquired from a friend the skulls of various small animals, a cat, a dog, a fox. She covered them with glow-in-the-dark paint 
and then hung the skulls in the windows of her cabin. She never experienced another break-in. She was a member of the American Chemical Society and the Society of Biological Chemists. She was the second recipient of the Garvan Olin Award that recognized distinguished scientific accomplishment, leadership, and service to chemistry by women chemists. The award is offered by the American Chemical Society and consists of a cash prize, $5,000, and a medal. She was a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and a member of the Philadelphia Pathological Society, Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society, and the Kappa Kappa Gamma Sorority. Her home kitchen was entirely electric, highly unusual for her time. But until her death at age 80 of a heart attack in 1952, she proudly ate frozen and refrigerated foods daily, and preferably over fresh and canned foods, knowing she had helped to make them safe. Now, about the invention of the egg carton. I found four secondary sources which claim it was Mary Engel Pennington who came up with the idea. None of them give a reference, and I have a feeling they just copied the story from one amateur historian to another, you know, kind of like I do. (laughs) Before the invention of the carton, people literally put all their eggs into one basket. The person who is credited with inventing and patenting the first commercial egg carton is a Canadian named Joseph Coyle. The egg carton box design most frequently used today was created by H.G. Bennett in 1952. Now, the person credited with designing the first foam egg carton is John Huntsman. If that name sounds familiar, he was the father of the former Utah governor and ambassador to China, John Huntsman Jr. Huntsman subsequently developed the foam clamshell designed for the Big Mac. But the next time you head to the frozen food aisle at your local grocery store, utter a silent thank you to the woman who did the bulk of the work to make it happen, Dr. Mary Engel Pennington, Ph.D., buried under a large slab with family members in Section G, Lot 266, in the north part of Laurel Hill Cemetery. Opening on March 7th, their legacies, the women of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, an exhibit that celebrates the achievements of 16 women buried in Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. This exhibit is just one way that the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are celebrating 100 women for the 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment. The exhibit is on display in the museum at Laurel Hill Cemetery through Thursday, December 31st, 2020. It's open to the public Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. The exhibit is free, but donations to the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are greatly appreciated. Their legacies are the women of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. Next time in the April edition of All Bones Considered, it's A Night at the Opera. Giuseppe Del Puente may have been the most famed operatic tenor of the 1880s and 1890s, but he lay in an unmarked grave at West Laurel Hill Cemetery for many decades. David Bispam was the Bruce Springsteen of his day, America's best-known operatic baritone. President Teddy Roosevelt was one of his biggest fans. And Eleanor Mayo was well on her way to a successful career in opera until a bad review 
and a marriage curtailed her performing almost before it started. Plus, of course, I have to tell the story of Robert Carson. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hills are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You can wander on your own or take one of the more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year or download the app for both cemeteries and chart your own way across the property. Find out more at www.thelaurelhillcemetery.org or www.westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. There is no shortage of material on Martha Costum. I depended mostly on her her autobiography, Martha J. Costum, A Signal Success, The Life and Travels of Mrs. Martha J. Costum. That's Lippincott Company, Philadelphia, 1886. Also, Tom Lonergan wrote sort of a new new age journalism biography of her called Martha Costum and the Box of Light. It's uh, iUniverse Publishing, copyright 2013. Lisa A. Maravich wrote, Let Her Have Brains Too, Commercial Networks, Public Relations, and the Business of Invention. That's from Business and Economic History, Volume 27, Number 1, pages 140 to 161. Denise E. Palato, Martha Costin, A Woman, A War, and a Signal to the World, from the International Journal of Naval History, Volume 1, Number 1, April 2002. Finally, Kevin Olson, Chemistry Lights Up the Beach, Martha Costin, and the Signal Flare, Parts 1 and 2. That is from The Indicator, which is a monthly newsletter of the New York and New Jersey sections of the American Chemical Society. That was published in November and December of 2014. Virtually all of the information on Rachel Holloway Lloyd came from one researcher and author, Mark Greep, G-R-I-E-P, and his 2014 tome, Easy and Lucid Guide to a Knowledge of Rachel Abbey Holloway Lloyd, Lincoln, Nebraska, Keeper's Cottage Press. He gave me permission to present much of this material unaltered, and I appreciate that. 
And then finally, from Mary Engel Pennington, I found a few things. Lisa May Robinson's Regulating What We Eat, Mary Engel Pennington and the Food Research Laboratory. That's from Agricultural History, Volume 64, Number 2, the United States Department of Agriculture in Historical Perspective, Spring 1990, pages 143 to 153. Suzanne E. Friedberg, The Triumph of the Egg, Comparative Studies in Society and History, Volume 50, Number 2, April 2008, pages 400 to 423. There is a website, HTTP Craves, dot everybody shops dot com the woman who brought us frozen foods with a dash between each word and that uh, that give me some good information also and finally an old issue of the new yorker barbara heggie the title of the article is ice woman it's the new yorker magazine september 6th 1941 pages 23 through 30 thanks for listening